If you were with us last week, we started this new series in 1 Corinthians where for the next few months, we're going to walk through this 2,000-year-old letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about 20 years after the death of Jesus. So listen to these words from the first chapter. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. My message and my preaching, Paul writes, were not with wise and persuasive words. Now this got me thinking back to the first time I ever got to preach. And I'll never forget it, not because it was a home run or because everyone in the audience was led to tears and gave their lives to Christ. Mostly I'll never forget it because it was a straight up traumatic experience. I was on a ski trip with a couple hundred high schoolers. And the guy that was supposed to speak, he got sick and he canceled last second. Well, I was just a college intern. Like, more to the point, I was the skit guy, okay? I'm the funny guy who tries to make people laugh during the program. But they needed somebody to preach and nobody was willing to do it. And so I was voluntold. <laughs> now, imagine a room full of like a couple hundred 16-year-olds who've been skiing all day, okay? They're tired. They don't want to hear a sermon. They just want to hang out like in the hot tub or whatever. So we sing a few songs and I get up. And I go to the stage to give my talk, and it was like watching a train wreck in slow motion. I was so nervous that my mouth completely dried up. I could barely get the words out. The whole time, I'm slamming my water bottle, just chugging water, which apparently was the only thing that made the kids laugh the whole sermon. My content was all over the place. I lost track of time. I didn't know what to do with my hands, and I was pacing back and forth on the stage, um, kids started keeling over in the audience, and not because they were slain by the Spirit. They're just falling asleep. I went way too long. I didn't land the plane. After it was all done, people were coming up to me saying things like, wow, that was so brave of you. <laughs> it's like they felt sorry for me. All that to say, when Paul writes, my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, I can get behind that. Like, I know what that's like. But see, Paul, part of what Paul's getting at here is, and as we looked at last week, there's division growing in the Corinthian church. And part of that has to do with the cult of personality that every once in a while crops up in a church. Sometimes we'll get a phone call here at HP Prez where someone's asking, who's preaching this Sunday? And then they'll ask the question, well, which service is that person preaching in? Because we have simultaneous services. And a few years ago, we were getting a lot of these calls and we got kind of worried about this. And we don't want this to be a place where people are choosing their worship service based on the preacher that they like the most. And so we took all of this information away, took it off the website. We told people on the phone, hey, just come to the, ser come to the service. Don't worry about who's preaching. Well, the backlash was swift. And we got the message. People want to know who's preaching. And they've been asking that question for 2,000 years. So, little background to the city of Corinth. It had become one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And one of the hallmarks of Corinth was its cultural vibe, this art scene, if you will, which prized and celebrated great public speaking, the art of rhetoric, which was the most prized of talents. So they'd have these great contests and celebrities, famous communicators would wow the audiences of Corinth, which if you think about it, makes sense. Right before television or radio or YouTube, 
entertainment was about live performance, these speakers who would dazzle you with their silver-tongued prose. And so it's not surprising that this fascination with celebrity orders carried over into Sunday mornings. And the phone would ring at First Pres Corinth, and a voice would ask, is Apollos preaching this Sunday? Is, is that guy, uh, is, is Paul back in the pulpit, or is that guy Cephas preaching again? If so, we're headed to the lake. And as harmless as that may sound, it started to split the church. The Paul groupies were fighting with the Apollos groupies. People were bragging over who baptized them, which preacher. The church was splitting apart. And so Paul takes out his pen and he writes this letter to the Corinthian Christians. And he says, just so you know, Apollos and Cephas and me, we're on the same team. We are each other's biggest fans. There's no daylight between us, no dividing the church over which one of us you'd like to hear. So that's the backdrop to 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 1. Which, by the way, isn't there a little irony in the Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist the world has ever known? And he says, I didn't come to you in wise or persuasive words. He who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the most breathtaking words the world has ever seen on love. Even this passage we're about to read, it is so well written. We could just kind of end with this scripture reading, no sermon, close in prayer, beat the Methodists to lunch, and it'd just be great. So 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll start in verse 18. Beautiful words. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These are the famous traveling speakers. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And down to verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we'll end the reading there. Did you notice in that text how the words foolish and wisdom, folly and wisdom are paired over and over again as contrasts? Again, Paul is tapping into the culture of Corinth, this city that, that prized above all else these great debaters and speakers who would sound off on the, the latest and greatest ideas and wisdom and knowledge. In fact, the competition among these famous orders often had to do with this one question. What is wisdom? What is true wisdom? And the person who could speak about that with the most compelling polished words, that was the winner. They prided themselves, these Corinthians, on their knowledge, their information. And we get this. 
right? We Presbyterians, life of the mind, we love learning and libraries and scholarship and theology. Knowledge is a great thing. It's just not the same thing as wisdom. In college, I was uh, discipled by a guy who was a professor in the English department there. And he would talk about how even among some of the brightest top scholars in the world, uh, you had people whose lives were radioactive dumpster fires, broken relationships, misery everywhere. They had all kinds of knowledge, but they lacked wisdom. They didn't even live out the things that they knew. In fact, he told me about this one colleague, one professor in the English department, who was always complaining that they needed to get more graduate students to teach more classes because you don't have to pay grad students very much, and then she wouldn't have to teach as many classes, and and she could be paid more. Here's the kicker. She was a Marxist, a Marxist scholar. So it's like, let me get this straight, right? You want to have cheap labor and reap all the profits. Isn't that what you're supposed to be against? So knowledge is great, it's just not the same thing as wisdom. You can have all the knowledge in the world and it can be given to you by the most compelling TED Talk communicators, but wisdom is something altogether different. So what is wisdom? And where do we find it? How do we get it? Look at what Paul says. When I came to you, I didn't come with human wisdom, for I resolved To know, there's that word knowledge. That's what the Corinthians were after. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what is wisdom? Where is God's wisdom? Paul's answer is, it's a person. It's Jesus. It's the knowledge. The knowledge that Paul is talking about is not just head knowledge. It's not just information. It's a relationship. It's knowing a person the one who was crucified for us. So here's what I want to do in the time that we have left. Is anybody falling asleep during this talk? Okay. The wisdom of God, if wisdom is a person, the crucified Christ, well, then how do we get it? How do we get this wisdom? Three ways. And just to be clear, all three of these, all three are things that the world looks at and says, that's foolish. How could you believe that? The wisdom of God that is in Christ Jesus, it comes to us in the word, in the church, and in the cross. So first, we get this wisdom in the word, in this book. But here's the key, and this is where we, where I so often get this wrong. It is not about filling your head with knowledge, but building a relationship with the one to whom these words point. It's about knowing Jesus That when we open up this book, we're not just reading a book like any other historical text, as well documented as it may be, or as breathtaking as the literature within it may be. And it is all that. But when we read this book, something happens that cannot be explained with human wisdom. God speaks, and not just in the past, but in the present. God shows up. God becomes real to us. God encounters us in these very words. Now, the world would say, that's foolish. Like, you don't really believe that these words are somehow divinely inspired, given to you, God-breathed, living and active. Do you? We do. Which is why we talk so much about the personal practice of reading Scripture. It's not to get all filled up with knowledge so that we can win Bible sword drills. This is how we come to know Jesus, the wisdom of God. So real quick, how do we, how do we read the Bible? 
Maybe for some of you, and I'm just looking at some of you, that, and I know you've got this down, and you have built your lives around a daily practice of Scripture reading, but what if this is a new thing for you, or what if you just kind of need a fresh start? And here's what I would suggest. Start with a letter like 1 Corinthians. We're going to be walking through this for the next number of weeks. Um, we had a number of these Scripture journals around the church. I've been told this is the last one. So I can give it to one of you after the service, or you can order one online. It's a great way just to kind of walk through a book of the Bible. But and if you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide one for you or just steal one of those pew Bibles and we'll find another one. I really did say that. It's okay. You can grab one of the, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles. And every day, here's what I want you to do. Just call it an experiment. Try this for a week. I want you to take at the same time every single day, Maybe, so let's just say first thing in the morning, before you grab for your phone, which is harder than you think, before you do that, to check text messages or emails or whatever news app you prefer, find a place where you can sit down the same time every day and start your day with words from, for example, 1 Corinthians. And as you open up to 1 Corinthians, start with a prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand these words of Scripture so that you're not just studying the Bible like you'd study Chaucer. Pray, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Give me your wisdom, not my own. Part of this, see, is allowing these words, inviting the words of Scripture to correct us, to help us to see the parts of our lives that maybe we're blind to. Because if we're not open to that, we can actually get quite creative in bending what we think this is saying to match what we believe wisdom is or what culture tells us wisdom really is. So Holy Spirit, help me to see and to hear what you want to say and not just what I want it to say. You see the difference there? Spend five, maybe ten minutes and read through a small passage, maybe one chapter. Don't be in a rush and don't be heroic here. You don't have to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Just be open to what God might be saying to you. If your mind wanders, it's okay. Come back to the text. If something jumps off the page to you, underline it. Take notes. Draw arrows from one phrase to the other. God is speaking to you in this exercise. So first, we find wisdom. We find Jesus in his word. But then second, the wisdom of God, it comes to us through the church. Last week, we said that the church, this gathering is not just an organization, it is more than a 501c3. We are the body of Christ. When you look around at the people in this room or the people singing in the choir next to you, you are looking at the physical body of Christ, which again, the world says, you don't, come on, you don't really believe that. Like this is just a room full of hypocrites. You'd be a fool to think that wisdom is gonna come through this actual body of Christ. Come on, yeah. That's why we're so passionate about helping people find community, and not just in this big room, but life on life, whether through a community group or a Sunday class or a discipleship conversation where you're meeting one-on-one -on -one with somebody who's maybe a little further down the road of faith. We invite the people who make up the body of Christ to speak wisdom into our lives that we don't have on our own. So when we're making decisions about what job to take or what career to pursue or whether to marry this person or date that person or how to spend our money or how to raise our kids, Lord, help me know how to raise my kids. 
When we're asking those questions, we surround ourselves with other Jesus followers, imperfect as they are, whom we can trust to ask questions that are different than the questions culture asks of us. Namely, what will make me most successful? What will be best for my image? And what will make me happy? Right? These are the questions that culture asks of us. God's wisdom is found in a community that's willing to ask a different set of questions. How will this help you come to know and become more like Jesus? How is God inviting you to join him in what he's doing in this world, especially among the poor? And then here's a great wisdom question. What does love look like in this situation? What does love look like? So I'll give you an example. Uh, recently I heard a story about a woman named Joyce and her husband Steve. Now, Steve's brother is a very angry, unreasonable, controlling person. So when their dad died, uh, there was a lot of conflict between Steve and his brother over the inheritance. Well, eventually, after spending a lot of time in God's word, time praying and listening to his community, Steve decided that the right thing to do was to give up his half of the $750,000 house that made up the bulk of their inheritance, just to give his half up to his brother, not to appease his brother, but Steve just had this growing sense that I got everything, I received everything that I needed from our parents when they were alive. And so he decided to give his half over to his brother. Meanwhile, Joyce, the wife, is fuming. She was angry about this. That's not right. That's not fair. Anybody else feel that way? Yeah. You can hardly blame her. It's not fair that Steve would give half of the inheritance, which would have helped them not only financially, but their kids as well. That's what Joyce was feeling. Well, that caused Steve to feel even more hurt, even more stressed than he was already feeling in this conflict with his brother, and now he's got conflict in his marriage. So here's what Joyce did in her words. She said, I turn to the place where wisdom resides, to my Savior Jesus, and over the course of the weeks, I spilled out all my anger to Jesus, and I just kept saying to him in prayer, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And then Joyce said, God started to ask me a new set of questions, different questions than our culture asks. The Holy Spirit started asking me, do you trust Jesus? And what's most important to you? Fairness? Money? Steve? And here's what Joyce said. Over time, in this back and forth of prayer and reading God's word and listening, keyword, listening for God's wisdom in community, God shifted my priorities. And I realized that Jesus is my high, highest priority, and the next is Steve, and that Steve needed my support during a challenging time for him more than we needed that inheritance. Jesus changed my heart. And Steve began to feel a deeper level of love and support for me. And then she said, I've come to realize we didn't need that inheritance. I, we have enough. We're doing okay financially. And she said, now I have more compassion for Steve's brother who is alone and has so many regrets from his life. It was a hard decision, but it deepened our trust in Jesus and our love for one another. And just a PS to that story, a couple years later, a friend of theirs in their church community who initially didn't really understand Steve's decision to give up his half of the inheritance, this friend, a couple years later, actually did the same thing for his sister because of Steve's example. Now, I can imagine another case 
where the right answer, where wisdom might have been, to push for a more fair, equitable settlement and to divide it equally. I can understand a scenario where that would have been the right thing to do. But in this case, for Steve and for Joyce, they knew that wisdom isn't knowledge, it's a person named Jesus. And they turned to him and they looked in scripture and they asked for wisdom in their community. They were both teachable and correctable. Joyce was able to to let God ask her these different kinds of questions, which led her to realize that, that what was really important what's fair wasn't the most important thing here. And that led to a breakthrough in her marriage and a more joy-filled life. They didn't spend what could have been years fighting and bickering and the money and the trials. They didn't do that. They have peace. They're not bitter and angry. Mostly they're free. They know Jesus better. Okay, that's wisdom. So where do we find wisdom? In his word. He speaks to us through his word in his church, the body. And then finally, we find God's wisdom in the cross. Here's what Paul writes. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Where were the Jew- what were the Jews looking for? Power, signs, the Red Sea parting, their enemies crushed. They wanted a conquering king who would come and crush the Romans and put them in their place and end their oppression. But instead, Jesus was crucified. He didn't save them from the Romans. He was killed by them. But what happened on that hill and on that cross would go on to overcome and to outlast Roman power, and it would go on to transform the world. What were the Greeks looking for? Wisdom. Wisdom. They wanted knowledge. They wanted a philosopher. And Jesus came as a carpenter, not the kind of person you go looking to for wisdom. And yet, Jesus' wisdom and his teachings and his way of life, it would go on to turn the world upside down. Because God, in his wisdom and in his teachings, he did something so foolish. He left the comforts of heaven and he came down and he was born in poverty and obscurity. And he died the death that we deserve to pay the price of our sins. What a foolish act but he did it because he's a fool for love. This is wisdom that we too would look to him and follow him and give up our right to be right and that we would serve and wash feet and lay down our lives for the sake of the least and the lost. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, may we resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, Lord Jesus, would you help those words to come true and to have power in our lives, not just head knowledge, but to sink in deep, to shape who we are becoming in and through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.